0: There are two passages of scripture that I want to read this morning for the text. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's verses 1 and 2, and the second is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Doesn't mean we're going to have a sermon twice as long, necessarily, could be that. When Michelle was much smaller, one day I was kind of getting my sermon in my Bible on Sunday morning, and she looked and I just had one verse of Scripture. And she said, Oh boy, it's a short one today. She thought, <laughs> Little did she know. Chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 1. I'll read verses 1 and 2, and then First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy." And the uh, First Peter passage, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a tale that um, just after Ben Franklin's kite-flying experiment, and a group of Frenchmen wanted to do their own experiment with electricity. They wanted to see how fast it moves, and there was a large monastery in France, and an abbot volunteered his monks to be used in this experiment, and because they had taken a vow of uh, obedience, they had no really no choice in the matter. And so they lined a thousand of these monks up side by side, each holding the hands of the person standing beside them. And at the head of the line, the first man in line was uh, received this bolt of electricity. And the tale goes that a thousand monks leaped into the air at precisely the same moment. Must have been quite a sight, like some gigantic Toyota commercial. And I I think that there are three conclusions that one could draw from that story. The first is that electricity moves at a very rapid pace. The second is that uh, abbots in French monasteries in the 17th century uh, exerted a tremendous authority over their monks. And the third is, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could get a thousand people that excited in the church about something at the same time. I guess it's hard to get people excited about anything, especially is it true when you begin to talk to them about stewardship. I am reminded this morning of the oft-told tale of the black preacher who preached his inaugural sermon in in a new pastorate and he stood up to say, he said, folks, he said, we're going to get away from the status quo in this church, and this church is going to begin to move. He said, we're going to start walking. And everybody was getting excited, and one of the main deacons sitting down the front, he was really caught up in it. And he said, amen, pastor, let her walk. And the preacher said, he said, no, he said, I'm not going to be satisfied with that. He said, we're going to run and not be weary. And this head deacon was getting really into it. He said, amen, pastor, let her run. Well, he said, he, as he looked out over his congregation, he said, "With well, the potential in this church, he said, we're gonna mount up with wings and we're gonna soar. And the deacon said, amen, pastor, let her soar. And he said, as he kinda defined the, the uh, responsibilities of mounting on wings, he said, in order for this church to fly, everybody in it's gonna have to make a new commitment to giving and just deflated that deacon's ego. I mean, it deflated his enthusiasm. And after a kind of a brief pause, he said, let her walk, Pastor, let her walk. (laughs) I know it's really difficult to get excited. I mean, to get to to where you wanna jump for joy when when we begin to talk about the commitment of stewardship in the church. But I wanna try, or I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit this morning to apply that electric current to the first one in line. And I guess a place to begin would be at some definitions. What is a steward? We have to turn to Carl Bates for a definition. He told about riding on a train one day and he was sitting in the dining car and a man was waiting at his table and he asked him what his official title was. He said, well, I'm the waiter. And he looked up to the front of the dining car and was a man dressed much like him but had a few more decorations on the shoulders. He said, well, what is that man? He said, that's the steward. And so the question, What is a steward? He gave a masterful answer. He said, he's the man who takes care of the boss's business to the end of the line. I think we'd be hard pressed to find a better definition for steward than that. And Christian stewardship is giving systematically and proportionally of our time and talents and material possessions based on the conviction that these are a trust from God to be used in His kingdom for the benefit of mankind. And expressly, stewardship, Christian stewardship, is the responsibility of serving as a trustee of that which really belongs to someone else. It's the conviction that life is really a stewardship, that all of life is really a trust and not a gift. If it were a gift, then we could do with it as we please, since it is a trust, then we must give an account to somebody for it. Now stewardship runs or operates in three realms. It involves the proper use of one's material possessions. Now I can just hear some breath, somebody saying in their mind, here we go, all we hear when we go there, somebody talk about money. Well, I can say this morning without a blush that I'm not afraid to talk about money because I'm absolutely convinced and I live with a growing conviction that a man must be right in this relationship with his, of his life in order to be right with God in any relationship. And I believe it is my uh, uh, solemn responsibility to help people, to lead people to be right with God. And a man can never re- really be truly right with God unless he is right in this relationship with it, of his life. Now I wish there was some less painful way to put that truth than that, but I don't know any other way to put it. As a matter of fact, I thought about taking some classes in anatomy so I could find out you know, how to handle these sensitive nerves that people have, this sensitive nerve that runs to some folks' pocketbook. It's so delicate. But when 14% of the average membership of any church carries 90% of the financial responsibility of that church, somebody needs the ability to deal with a matter of faithfulness relative to stewardship. For some of us, when we get to the end of the line, are going to find that the boss is not too happy about the way we've taken care of his business. Have you ever wondered how sin got into the world, how it ever came? Have you ever thought what is the root sin of all sin? Well, the Bible tells us in the very first book that God put man in the garden of Eden and He gave man the ability to enjoy all the goods of that garden except for one, the fruit of one forbidden tree. That was a portion or a part that God had separated for Himself. And He willed that man not put his hands on that separated portion. But the Bible says that man coveted that part that God had separated for Himself. And he dared to put his hands on that which God had separated. And sin entered into the world. And at the root of that sin and the root of every sin was the covetousness of man. And ever since the garden, man has dared to put his hands on that which God has set apart for himself, has set aside just for himself. Take the Sabbath. Now God gave man six days to do his labor, to do his work, but the Sabbath was to be or is to be a day of rest and worship. It was a separated day, separated by God Himself. And God separated this day and called it holy. And man has dared to put his hands on this holy day and turn it into a holiday. So ever since the garden, we are witness to this terrible tragedy of man ignoring God's separated portion and failing to remember that the spiritual man needs food just like the physical man. Take the tithe, for example. It is a principle that is older than the Mosaic Law stating that God has separated a portion of man's income for himself and declared that man was not to touch that. It was holy unto the Lord. But just as in the Garden of Eden when man dared to put his hands on the forbidden, man has dared to take that which really belongs to God and use it for himself and the Bible says that he's cursed with a curse because of it and the kingdom's work goes begging because of it. The principle is that the first 10% of man's income is separated unto God and is holy to Him. A number of years ago, the church treasurer of a Baptist church in Fort Worth received the receipts of the, uh, of the Sunday school and of the church, and he put them in a, in a bank sack, as was his practice. And he went down to the bank, to the night depository, to put the money there, that he'd always, as he'd always done. He took his little girl with, with him. She was about 12 years old, I remember. And when he got to the bank, because he'd done it perhaps, you know, systematically, some men were there, some robbers were there. And they stepped out from the, from the uh, cover, and they had guns. And they pulled these guns on this man and demanded the money. And he clutched it to himself, the little girl says. And this is what he said, he said, men, this belongs to God. He said, you can have my money as little as it is, you can have my wristwatch, you can take my car, but I cannot give you what belongs to God. And they gunned him down in the face of his daughter and took the money. And he went to his grave believing that that which belongs to God God must not be touched by man. Now we may offer all kinds of rationale and excuses for not bringing the holy tithe, God's separated portion, into the storehouse. But just as Adam and Eve could not cover their nakedness once they had put their hands on what belonged to God, neither can man cover his failure. For that which belongs to God belongs to Him. And that's a principle that remains the same whether we like it or not. The Bible says that the tithe is the Lord's, the whole tithe. If it is the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's and it is holy unto Him. Now you might say, well, I just don't see it that way. Well, that's that's quite possible. But the Bible still says that truth. And you might say to me, well, I'm heavy in debt and I can't even meet my debts with my salary. Uh, My answer is, who is not in debt? But our first responsibility is to Him. And you might answer, I have obligations and dependence. And my answer is, we all have obligations and dependence. And you may be heroically taking care of relatives, and that's great, but the tie the Bible says, belongs to God, and He, to Him, belongs our first responsibility and obligation. Somebody used to accused William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, of handling tainted money, and he kind of said jokingly, the only thing tainted about this money is taint enough. And when a man gives to God less than the first tenth of his income, it taint enough. Christian stewardship involves the proper use of material possessions. But it involves the proper use of time, and that's so important. I used to pastor a lot of seminary students. Denny and Elaine were uh, a group of a part of that group over in Fort Worth. And one day, one of them called me, and he needed to do an interview for a fieldwork class. He Inter- Need to interview his pastor, and he wanted me to take him on a trip from Monday to Sunday and tell him what all I did during the week, my schedule, and how I budgeted my time to meet that schedule and that demand. And so he, he wanted me to take him hour by hour, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc. And I stuttered and stammered in that interview. I'm good at that under pressure. And uh, you know, I was saying to myself, you know, what do I do with my time? I mean, you, it's not it's not easy to remember what you do from hour to hour, you know, from week to week, really. I didn't tell that young man of all the wasted hours that I would spent, you know, and all the missed opportunities. I promise you, I didn't mention those, the missed opportunities because I didn't know how to grasp, you know, I didn't take advantage of the opportunities that came. But I took him on a trip from Monday to Sunday that'd scare any young preacher to death, I'm telling you. He'd heard me preach and when I told him how much time I spent in sermon preparation, he said, I can't believe that. he said, I wouldn't believe you spent spend that much time in preaching that sermon. I never have forgiven him for that. I don't know how to take that. But I'm telling you what, I took him on a, a trip from Monday to Sunday that made us both perspire just talking about it. I don't know whether he quit the ministry or not, but I convinced him that preachers were busy, busy folks. You know what they say, whoever they are? They say that a man is never too busy to tell you how busy he is. Well, I told him, I convinced him how busy I was while I was doing that. I was thinking to myself, you know, there's somebody who is more interested in how I use my time than that young man is. He'll turn in this report. He'll get an A or a B or a C or a failure, and that'll be the end of the consequences of of this interview. But all down through the corridors of eternity, the timeless Christ is going to be interested in how I use my time. And when he left out of that interview, Jesus did a number on my conscience with questions like this. Sure, you spend a lot of time in your work but is it spent on essentials or non-essentials? Sure, you have 24 hours, just like everybody else does in a day. Do you expend your energy on the things that really matter or upon trivials and inconsequentials? Sure, you're busy. I know you're busy. The Lord has just done a number on me. Sure, you're busy, he said, but are you busy about the things that really matter? Are you? Now what if you had to stand today accountable to God for how you've used precious time? It may seem funny when you're listening to a guy talk about his being in a jam with a young preacher. What if you had to stand before God today and give an account of how you use this precious time he's given you? You say you don't have time to teach a Sunday school class, to do Bible study. You don't have time to do a quiet time. You say you don't have time to witness, to visit. You say you don't have time to practice on Wednesday night, to sing in the choir, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You say you don't have time. You tell that to God, who knows all about us. Who knows the wasted hours we spend watching television? Who knows the time we spend just listening to gossip? Who knows the time we spend just reading junk? You tell that to him that you don't have time. I heard the story about a Norwegian merchant who spent his 80th birthday measuring the time of his life. He calculated that he'd spend five years just waiting on somebody. (laughs) I spent about that long last week. He spent five years just waiting on somebody. He, he calculated that he'd spent six months tying neckties, three months scolding his children, and eight days just telling his dog to lie down and be quiet. Now, I know these tales, are not to be taken seriously. I didn't take that seriously when I read it, but it does point up a principle and a truth that when you add 10 minutes here and 5 minutes there, it just bites a big chunk out of the days that are so precious. No wonder the psalmist said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply to thee a heart of wisdom, may present to you a heart that's been wise in its use of time. We're not taking seriously this matter. We've got time to do God's work. I found it to be true that when a man lays his time on the altar of God, he has more time than he ever had before. Sometimes I get in this, my study in the morning I think of all the stress and the problems that face me and the responsibilities that face me in the day. I don't have time for my quiet time. I've got to get on with it. But I found this to be true. The longer I spend in quiet time, the more time I have in the day. It's amazing. Christian stewardship involves proper use, finally. One's abilities. I suppose that a more spiritual term would be one's gifts. And the Bible is replete with examples of how a a Christian is responsible for his gifts, that is, his spiritual gifts or gift, his abilities as God endowed him. And that's what Peter was saying in our text when he said, You who have received this special gift, employ it in the service of others as faithful stewards of the manifold grace of God. And what he's talking about is that when we're saved, we are given a spiritual gift. Some are given spiritual gifts, plural, and they differ from one to another. And all of these spiritual gifts are to be employed or to be used in servanthood in order that the redemptive grace of God might be manifested to a sin-stricken world. And how beautiful it is when a church gets excited enough to jump in the air at the same time when a church gets excited about discovering its spiritual gifts and manifesting those spiritual gifts in the body for the service of God so that he can get glory. It's a beautiful thing. There's a practical illustration of it taking place right now. Now, I I think I know what's happening right right this very moment. Right at this moment, this camera right up here is focused on somebody sitting right down in this audience. Just blew my illustration right out the tub. Turn that, focus that camera right here, would you? There you go. Get it on the most important people. Now we're over here. (laughs) This is it. All right. Now, what they're seeing on television right now is what's taking place right behind this pulpit, you know. Very few people... uh, are seen except, you know, just the people right here on the, on the, on the periphery and, and, and the preacher here. So you turn on your television, watch the replay of his service uh, tomorrow night, you're going to see most of the time focus right here. Doesn't focus on the people running that camera over there. That guy up there in the balcony, man running that sound system. Doesn't focus on those folks that are up there in that sound room, about six or eight of them. And if one little switch goes off up there, the whole thing's shot. As a matter of fact, it did last Sunday. And the service that we got, his marvelous Easter service, because of one little switch didn't get on the tape. What I'm trying to emphasize is that everybody is important in the function and the ministry of the the church, in the service of God, even though oftentimes you only see one person as it's happening. Sometimes it's the only person you ever see. John Philip Sousa went in to rehearse his band and he got this marvelous band going and he, and he stopped the rehearsal and he said, where's my piccolo? There in the blare of the trumpet's blast, this master of, of music had missed the uh, seemingly insignificant piccolo. Where's my piccolo? Let me tell you what. As God watches the function of this church and every church. I I feel that in his heart this master who has brought this marvelous symphony together is wondering, where's the piccolo? Where are the people that are out there in the background, behind the scenes who have those one talents? Where are they? Why haven't they been committed to the altar of God? Why haven't they been used uh, for my glory, uh, to to manifest my dominion and sovereign? The thing that disturbs me is not that we just have too many one talented people. The thing that disturbs me is that we have so many indifferent folks who treat the, the so many indifferent five talented people who, who, tr- who act as if they have one talent. And we have so many one talented people who are so indifferent, they've buried their talent have never done anything with it. Guy went into a room, he's whistling. Young guy in the room said, is that the best you can do? Sound like some kids I know. That's the best you can do. This guy said, well, really it isn't. He said, you think you can beat it? The young guy said, I think I can. I think I can beat that. So he started whistling. The guy said, can you beat this? So he started whistling again, much better. The young boy said, no, I can't beat that. But the question is, if you can whistle like that, why were you whistling the other way? My question is this morning, if you have five talents, why aren't you using them for God? My question this morning is if you have a talent, why isn't it being used for God? And if you've been saved, you certainly have a spiritual gift. The question is why haven't we brought these gifts that God has given us for the ministry of the the kingdom and for the glory of God and placed them on the altar and said, This is to be used as you have given it to be used? That's the key. This and I'm through. I may be already through, but I, am not. Uh, I haven't quit yet. So, this and I'm quitting. Um, some of you heard Leon Kilberth tell that about the little about the young boy who was just the all-American boy. He was just. Besides all that, you can't leave right now. You'd get wet if you do. Are you listening to this? I hope you get this. This is the zinger. This is a kicker. We've got to get together now and get this. Cameras are on and everything. Ready. He told about this young boy, this high school boy, this young fellow was just an all-American boy. I mean, he was just great. He was an honor student. He was an athlete. He was a, a great young Christian in the church. And, and uh, he was just perfect. And he went off to college and... and And he got into college and he was the same. He didn't didn't change a bit. He was just, I mean, clean and pure and good. And he went to church, you know, and he and he did a quiet time and he he was good in his lessons and he was a good athlete. He was just a model kid. And this guy came up to him one day and said, What is it with you? He said, What's going on inside of you? What makes you tick? This young boy said, let me tell you the story of my life. He said, when my mother was carrying me, my mother was pregnant with me. She went to the doctor for an examination and he told her that some complications had developed and she wasn't going to be able to deliver her son, her child. The doctor said, if you deliver this child, you will die. And what we need to do is abort the child so you can live you can have other children. And she said, "If I carry that child for 9 months, I know that I'll die delivering him, but is the chances are the chances good that he'll live?" She said, "Chances are excellent that he'll live, but one of you's going to die." And she said, well, "That's no option." She said, "I I want him to live. I mean, I I God has given me a baby, and, and God wants this baby, and I I I want you to promise me Commit to me that you're going to deliver this child, even though it means my life," he said. Now, lady, let me tell you what. What? What's, let me tell you what's the truth. Let me clue you in here, woman. He said, "You're young. This is your first child. You can have other babies. This is just an abnormal complication. You're 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 crazy." She said, "I may be crazy, but I want my child to live." She called in her husband. And told him, and talked with him about her decision. And this is what she said: When he gets old enough to understand, I want you to tell him. That his mother gave her life, in order that he might live. It happened just like a doctor said, and it happened just like he, she wanted it. When the boy got old enough, the father called him in and told him what had happened. Your mother, gave up her life literally so you could live. Now, he said, son, I think on the basis of that, you ought to give your very best to this life. And he said, you know what? I have never forgotten that. He said, I have never gone back on it. I feel, he said, I have always felt that if my mother was willing to give her life for me, give the best thing she had for me, I should give my best for her. Now, let me tell you something. Everything you have, including your life, God has given you. As a matter of fact, if you believe the cross at all, you believe that God gave His very best. He gave His Son, and His Son gave His life for you. Now, how in the world can you give less than the best that you have to Him? How in the world can we give less than our best to Him? And I hope that question haunts you like it haunts me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege of being a steward of all you own in this world. An awesome responsibility to take care of the boss's business till we hear the conductor call the station. We have to get off having come to the end of the line. God, we want to be faithful to that stewardship. God, you know I've already been on my knees to say, Father, I don't want to say anything I'm not willing to do myself. And I say it again, Father. I don't want you to let me say anything that I'm not willing to do. I want to commit to you, Lord, my time and my gift. My material possessions, because God, I know they are holy and separated unto you. And I pray that we all shall, so that you can get glory and your name will be honored and your kingdom be extended to all the earth, because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'd like for you to give me your attention for these invitations. The first invitation this morning is for you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, The very first thing that God wants of you is your faith, your trust, your belief, your confidence that Jesus died and He's the only Savior. He's your Savior. Only He can save you. I want you to come this morning and just do the work that He requires, that is the work of faith commit your life to Jesus Christ the second invitation I want you to I want to ask of you is in the area of stewardship Perhaps with regard to time, maybe with regard to your spiritual gift. I mean, we need desperately, we need people to help us in this TV ministry. We need people desperately in the medical missions ministry that we have. And we need teachers desperately. We're reorganizing to add instantly 540 people to our Sunday school rolls. How many teachers are we going to need? I'm going to ask you this morning to make a commitment of your life to Christian stewardship with regard to time and talent, ability, gift, and with regard to your material possessions. Maybe you're not a tither, but you want to be, or you want to want to be. And so I'm going to ask you to publicly do that. There's something about doing that publicly that makes it, this seals it. You know, kind of like clinches and clinching a nail, at the back of the board. Or then I'm going to ask you to come this morning and in this invitation to place your membership your life in the membership of First Baptist Church now it's a good time it's an exciting time a thrilling time because it's time for us to do what God wants us to do now don't wait don't wait a minute the easiest time to do it is to come on the very first word the very first stanza we're gonna do it always stand to sing you come